Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Welcome back to The Rest is History, where we are on part two of our epic journey into the trial and execution of Charles I with Professor Ted Vallance of Roehampton University. So, Ted, just talking about your background, because listeners can't see this, but Ted has this splendid background of the of the trial, which I like to think is his real wallpaper <laughs> yes, um, at home. No, we really approved this kind of upping the game. By Definitely. So we had, we had Dan Jackson in his his top hat and now we've got ted with this sensational wallpaper so before we talk about the sort of the, the judges as it were let's talk about the the scene in the in the trial and that first when it opens so the people behind you i mean they're uh, they're all men in the picture behind you um are the people there i mean are they all men or or is it just a huge mass and a kind of rabble of people do they have to buy tickets do they have to queue up to get their tickets how does all that work so there's a bit of a differentiation between uh, cheap seats and, you know, the, the, the kind of costlier options. So there are gar- galleries that are kind of above where the commissioners are sitting, uh, which would have been accessible from, from private residences. So this is where the kind of the, the wealthier uh, patrons are coming to see the trial. So you can kind of get a trial. box, like a kind yeah. of package. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So this is where, this is where Anne Fairfax, who, who makes some, so Thomas Fairfax's, his wife makes, uh, her, her famous kind of outburst from is from these, um, uh, from the, these posher seats in the galleries. And then you've got sort of, you know, cheaper seats. Uh, well, so, so there are, there are two alleged, uh, incidents where, um, she, she interjects. The first is on the opening day of the public proceedings of the trial on the 20th of January, where they're naming the commissioners of the court and they read out Thomas Fairfax's name, but he's not there, and she's reputed to say he has more wit uh, than to be here. Uh, and then on the 27th, when they actually condemn the king, uh, and they say they're condemning him on behalf of the whole people of England, and reputedly shouts out from the gallery, "No, not one in a hundred or, or words to that effect." Now, I should say this is this is one of those instances where there's problems with the sources because most of these these reports of her saying these things come from from much later accounts, from early 18th century accounts. But the one on the 27th is probably credible that she said that there. But we do have to bear in mind that there were probably about 2,000-odd spectators in this hall. So imagine the noise in that hall. Uh, Again, the February trials, we get more evidence about what it was actually like in terms of what it sounded like because Bradshaw has to keep telling witnesses to speak up because it's too hard to hear people. So I think it would have actually been quite hard to hear Anne Fairfax saying those things. We're we're probably getting reports secondhand from people who could, you know, were next to her or heard what she wanted to say later on and so on. So Bradshaw is John Bradshaw, who is a Cheshire lawyer, and he's what? He's president. He's he's essentially... He is the president of the court. So it is a very unusual institution. The High Court of Justice uh, created specially uh, to try the king. Bradshaw is its president. And then with 159 commissioners 
appointed, although much less than that actually turn up. And these commissioners are basically uh, judge and jury. So they're, they're occupying kind of multiple roles uh, within the court. But it is Bradshaw. The commissioners are pretty much silent during the proceedings. Uh, they're kind of arrayed behind him. He's, he's, he's directly facing Charles as the trial opens, as it's set out. Um, but it is Bradshaw who basically communicates everything about what, what the, commu- the commissioners want and what the commissioners do. Is it true that he wore a, a bulletproof hat? <laughs> so I was really hoping that we would get on to Bradshaw's uh, bulletproof hat. Um, I, I like to oblige. Yeah, th- thank thank you for that. So there is absolutely no evidence. Oh, oh. <laughs> and that what he is wore um, a bulletproof hat? And so what's <laughs> what's Charles wearing when he first comes in on that first day? What's he look like? Uh, so there, there is a there is a painting of him at his trial. Um, one thing is that he's, he's physically aged a, a, a lot. His, his beard is grey. It's a full beard rather than being kind of, you know, neat and trimmed as in those earlier, you know, Van Dyke, um, paintings, wearing mostly black, um, black cloak, black hat. Notably, he refuses, he doesn't take his hat off. Again, another sign that he doesn't, um, you know, recognise the authority of the court or the authority of the, and presumably the judges before him. The, the people sitting in judgment on him don't remove their hats to him. As no, king. no. So there's a lot so, of not hat. There's basically a lot of hat act. Yeah, yeah. action. Yeah. <laughs> but I think this is, the, it, you know, we're, we're, we're making a bit of a joke of it, but it, this is actually really important and really extraordinary. You know, you just think again, as you said, this is the anointed king. He. It's not only that he's he's bef- before people who are not taking their hats off to him. I mean, at least people like Bradshaw are, you know, fairly upper class people. There are witnesses who are in the bank, as it were, ready to be called up um, to, to, to give the prosecution's case, who are, you know, basically the lowest of the low. We've got kind of a 21-year-old butcher from Shropshire who's going to give evidence against his anointed monarch. I mean, that's an utterly remarkable reversal of the social hierarchy. This is really saying, you know, putting equality before the law into effect. But then there's this... So, in a way, the tables are turned on Charles because, you know, everything that he stands for is sort of being turned on its head. And yet the, the sort of... The irony is this is absolutely... Whatever you think of Charles I... This is his moment of glory in a way, isn't it? That, that, that he finds within himself this extraordinary kind of, I don't know what the word is. Is it courage? Is it serenity? This, this before, he gives this performance. Well, he uses his stammer, doesn't he? He'd always had a stammer and he, he, he speaks clearly for the first time. So there's a business with the cane, isn't there, Ted? Is that in the very first day when he he taps yes. someone with his cane? Yeah, so so the the prosecuting counsel, John Cook, um, is reading out the indictment against Charles. Um, and Charles says to him, hold. Uh, and Cook just carries on anyway. And so um, the king gets out his cane and taps Cook on the shoulder. And ominously the top of the cane falls off. And this is reported in news books. The, the leveler-influenced uh, news book, The Moderate, says this is very, you know, well, this doesn't look good for the Bad king. Time. The top of his canes come off. Um, so, 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 yeah. Um, and he waits for someone to pick it up, doesn't he? And then no one picks it no up. No one does. So yeah, so again, again, you know. But he doesn't lose his self-possession, though, does he? I mean, you would think that would be... I mean, I, no, frankly, I, putting myself in his shoes, I would be kind yes. of shaking and a terrible wreck of a man. But yes, he's not. Yeah. 
I, I think, you know, he, he shows kind of remarkable um, control. And, you know, as, you, as you've noted, Tom, you know, the, the, the stutter goes. It's very eloquent defence. I think it's very smart politi- politically as a defence as well. Because he's not just returning to, you know, Charles I of the 1630s. I'm king. Do what I say. My way or the highway. He reframes himself as being the man of the people, the defender the of the people, the people's liberties, <laughs> and the defenders of you know the the, the, the you know um, uh, the, the you know the the ancient constitution, the way things were. And but, in now it's it's his opponents who are the innovators, the people who want yeah. to destroy things and tear things up. And in that um, sense, he's got a case, though, hasn't he? I mean, can't he reasonably say? You are an arbit, you know, you're the product of a coup. You're an arbitrary military court. You know, I am, I am the, I, I am the anointed king and you have no authority to try me. Yes. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, that's the other thing. He does have a really strong case, um, to make. Uh, they, they try and sort of consult with lawyers in December of 48 to sort of find out what the kind of legal basis might be. And, and basically the kind of overall legal opinion is, you know, there isn't a legal way <laughs> of, you know, trying your king. The, yeah. the English law doesn't, doesn't, you know, factor this, um, scenario, um, into consideration. So he's got really good grounds and there are claims that are made, you know, st- statements about um, England being an elective monarchy, which is very, you know, easy for him to sort of challenge and, and dismiss. So he's he's on strong grounds here, um, which is another thing I'm sure, you know, that, that sort of um, helps to build his own confidence in the position that, that he's maintaining. And Ted, on top of that, isn't it the case, so the, arraign, the, um, the things that he's accused of, that he's the occasioner, the author, continuer of the said unnatural, cruel and bloody wars, and they're in guilty of all the treasons, murders, rapines, burning, spoils, desolations, damages and mischiefs to this nation acted and committed in the said wars or occasion thereby. I mean, the fact that he's the author of all of them, it seems a bit of overkill. Well, so I think this is where it gets more interesting. And I think this is where we do have to think a little bit more about the basis on which the trial is being conducted. And so... The, the ground sort of for the trial in, thing, in English common law, you know, that can't be sustained really. But what they're really going for is a basis more on, um, the laws of war and contemporary understandings of the laws of war, uh, and the idea of command responsibility. So the idea that the king, as the commander of the royalist armies, has been responsible ultimately for all of the bloodshed in the civil wars. And one of the reasons why they're doing that is that actually the king has given them, uh, he's he's made a bit of a concession anyway. So after the Second Civil War, Parliament basically reopens negotiations with the king in the so-called Treaty of Newport. And one of the things that the king does during the discussions in the Treaty of Newport is concede the Parliament's argument that it was waging a defensive war that it was waging a defensive war against the king. So he basically agrees to that point. Why does he do that? Uh, Well, at this point in time, he's pretty desperate. Um, And I think he's, you know, he's already worried about the army wanting to basically kill him. Um, It's also a point 
I, I should say that they, they say that these, all of these things are going to be wor- worked out in the final conclusions of the Treaty of Newport. And the, the Treaty of Newport is never concluded. So this is, this is something that he sort of concedes early on in negotiations and he might have rode back on later on. But they've, they've got that in the bank, basically. They've basically got his concession that he made in the Treaty of Newport. And so what a lot of these witnesses they wheel in say is, they saw the king when the royal standard uh, was raised at Nottingham to sort of signal the official kind of beginning of hostilities. They saw the king in armour with sword in hand, various battles so that they can show that he was there personally in command. They're establishing that he is the man who was responsible uh, for starting the war. He is the man who was responsible for prosecuting the war. Right. But it's still... I mean, when you've been through a civil war, generally you know that it's, it's kind of more complicated than that, isn't it? Yeah, but they're not going to admit that, Tom. I mean, <laughs> no, I know they're not. I know they're not. But it's still, it seems a, a, a good point on which Charles could base a, a, a defence. But of course, he doesn't. He won't defend himself, defense, right? Oh, yeah. He's so not defending he, himself. Yes, he doesn't so he, recognise its legitimacy. Yes, and so um, he he comes before the court on the twentieth of January. Yes, which is a, a Saturday, right? I think, uh, and then he probably you know, day oh, yeah, off, sorry. and then back on, <laughs> back on the Monday. Um, yeah. And then he's found guilty on the twenty fifth, twenty seventh. So he's he, he's he's um, in in private session. They condemn him on the twenty sixth, and then on the twenty seventh, that's that uh, condemnation is, is is made. Before but he him, he wasn't there on the twenty sixth, was he? Because no, he kicked so him out after three days. Yes, yes. So twenty third, twenty fourth, and twenty fifth, when they're hearing kind of witness testimony, the king is not present for any of this. And w- one argument is actually that again, this is a the hearing of witness testimony is a is a delaying strategy. And again, they're they're hoping that this this allowing this extra time, the king will be you know mull it over and come back and 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 enter in a plea, which doesn't happen. And at that and- point, Ted, but um. Let's imagine we had tons of questions about alternatives. So uh, uh, Tim Vasby Burney, top vicar, friend of the show, member of the Restless History Club, he says, you know, are there were there other alternatives to executing him, imprisoning him, sending him to exile, and so on? Had he adopted a different strategy on day one? Had he? Um, had he? Let's let's say. I mean, obviously, this is he'd have had to be a different person. But let's say he'd arrived on day one and said, "I do acknowledge the court." You know, I, I've made mistakes. I've learned valuable lessons. Learned lessons. Yeah. lessons have been learned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I was well advised by my yeah. by my staff. Um, I was <laughs> sacking made, them all. I was possibly sent emails, but I probably didn't read them before the party. Um, yeah. uh, if, he, if, ha- if that had happened, would there have been a different outcome? So would they have said, "Oh, well, in that case, you know, life imprisonment or or something," or, or if what if he turned up and said, "You're right, I abdicate." Or, or whatever, what would have happened? So I think this is, you know, as I say, it's been a big area of debate amongst historians. Um, I, I, I still, I, I think there's still a slim possibility that there might have been a, a an outcome of him being found guilty and uh, a, a kind of, you know, effectively he has to abdicate, goes into prison. Um, his son, Henry, becomes a kind of puppet king. The the issue with that as a possible outcome, I think, it again comes back for me to the rank and file of the army. So, so one of the most extraordinary things, which interestingly enough isn't recorded in um, 
the Parliament's own uh, recording of the trial in the in the, the the journal, the manuscript journals of the trial in state papers, is that on the twenty second of January, the court is directly approached by army petitioners. And what the army petitioners basically say is, we support you. You are a court doing God's work. Um, you are the people's court. <laughs> and, uh, um, but if you don't proceed against the king, then you're going to be destroyed and we're going to be destroyed as well. And you must, you must proceed against him as a tyrant. You must, you know, get rid of this, this dreadful, dreadful tyrant. Um, and as I say, noticeably, interestingly, that isn't recorded in the trial journal. But it, it brings home the way in which the army leadership are struggling to contain the army rank and file as well. Uh, and the anger within the army rank and file against the king too. So I think there was a, there's a real risk that if they hadn't gone through with executing Charles I, that army discipline could have disintegrated. So, so Ted, one other question on this, on this from Brixton Andrew. So Brixton, we've got to have him. Um, what was on trial? King Charles as a personality or the monarchy as an institution? By the time of the trial, is it, is it the very idea of monarchy that is being tried? I, I think it's certainly um, political authority. And there's a lot of signalling, I think, as well, um, towards uh, a Republican future, too. You know, in, in that, um, you know, the, the, the new coat of arms um, yeah. within uh, the trial, uh, in the way in which the trial kind of inverts the kind of established and accepted political order. Uh, I mean, you know, as I say, if we, if we imagine that the king had entered into a plea, the fact that he would have been, you know, um, uh, listening to testimony against him from, you know, the, these lowly witnesses is just, I think, you know, really remarkable, uh, kind of example of that. So the, there is a lot much, there's a lot more going on here, um, than just trying to trial, do away, deal with, case. deal with a bad king. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so, um, he is sentenced to death. By the court, D- does that come as a surprise to him? Uh, you know, has, does he think that he might call their bluff? Or I think at the be- at the beginning of the trial, um, and during the trial himself, he's already in a way sort of prefiguring this this casting of, of him as, as a martyr. He's already talking about himself in those in those terms. I think at the beginning of the trial, he you know understands that that's likely to be the conclusion. Um, but at the same time, he's still trying to kind of win political points and, and sort of, you know, win political arguments. When we get to that, that last day of the trial on the 27th and when Bradshaw won't let him speak after the sentence has been delivered, I think that's the point where we finally see Charles's composure actually break, where he, he can't, he almost, you know, he, he in a way I think, you know, he knows that it's the likely outcome, but when it's finally there... He can't quite believe it. He can't quite believe that they're, that actually they're not going to sort of pull back from this. They're not going to, you know, ultimately have second thoughts. So he's convicted on the 27th of January, 28th and 9th. Uh, they need signatures for the death warrant. And and how easy is it for them to get signatures, to to get people to dip their fingers in the blood? Well, so there, there's all sorts of stories about this. Um, the, the death warrant itself, um, you know, the, the copy that is preserved in the parliamentary archives does show evidence that it's the, the subscriptions, the signatures uh, are taken over several days rather than it all being done 
in in one go. Uh, and there are stories which are recounted post-restoration of Cromwell forcing people to sign, holding their hands to the death warrant. There are then stories of, you know, after they've signed of, you know, ink being flicked at people's faces and kind of hysterical laughter that they've, they've done this, that they've taken this step. We have to, I think, you know, take these statements with a pinch of salt because the people making these statements are on trial in 1660 um, and they're on trial for their lives. So they've obviously got a vested yeah. interest in saying, yeah, they held my hand when I when I signed it. I was forced to do this. The other thing we should note is that though there are 59 um, signatures on the death warrant, that more than that number stood up to show their assent uh, when <laughs> Charles I uh, was condemned. Very brave of the ones who stood but didn't sign. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Charles has been moved, hasn't he? Because they're going to be building the scaffold. So he's been moved to, and, and he's what, burning his papers and talking to his kids and stuff? Is that basically Yeah, so he has, he has sort of tearful um, final sort of um, interviews uh, with his children, um, in which in particular with, with Henry, he says, you know, you must never accept the crown, uh, um, you know, from, uh, if you're, you're to told to do so by the parliament and Henry promises that he, he won't. Um, yeah. So the fateful day arrives, 30th of January. And can you talk us through the events of yeah, so extraordinary day? Yeah. So, I mean, it, 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 it takes place, the, the scaffold is erected outside the banqueting house, which is 
obviously, you know, filled with symbolism because this is the the site of these royal entertainments, so these where court would it be masters. Now? It's not on Whitehall, not not the the road that goes past the banqueting house. Where where exactly? This is a terrible is, question to ask on a podcast. The, that isn't is the site. Yeah, no, isn't that it? is where it, that is where. So it, it's where, literally on. So, so where yeah, would so, it kind so, of? So, so yes, by the War Memorial the, or yeah, by so the Cenotaph or something. So, so the side that is facing the street. That, this is where it, this is where it took place. He walks out of one of those windows onto the scaffold that's been built out there. The reason why they're holding it there, though, is not for the symbolism of executing the king outside of his place of great court entertainments with the magnificent ceiling of you know the apotheosis of yeah, yeah uh, of, of james the first the old symbol of divine right kingship it's actually for security reasons because um where they execute the um people who are condemned in in um march of 49 so uh, james duke of hamilton they execute him in the palace yard but uh, the crowd at Hamilton's execution is estimated to be about 20,000. So they're, they're really, you know, that would have been far too many people for them to feel confident about being able to control the crowd if there was an attempt to kind of rush the scaffold and, you know, rescue the king. So they, they're choosing the, the banqueting house because it's actually an enclosed sort of square at this point in time, which can hold relatively few Spectators, and, so how do and they which choose is well controlled by the army. Well, they're not chosen, um, and they're not still, vetting them. For there's still an enormous crowd. I mean, if you look at the contemporary uh, prints of the execution, there are even people depicted sitting on the pitch of the roof of the banqueting house, so right on the top of it, trying to to get a view of this extraordinary scene. But but the the, the worry about security does that tell you that they know it's quite unpopular? I mean, London is a parliamentarian city. So you would think if they're going to execute the king anywhere, London's the the perfect place to do it. But are they still conscious that among the public at large, this is probably very unpopular? Is that what their thinking is? Yes, yes. And all the way through, I mean, the trial, there are also, you know, um, great security measures that are taken um, to ensure uh, that that the king can't be rescued. um, But then, Ted, doesn't that, they think they're the representatives of the people. So if you are, I mean, maybe this is a theme that recurs in history. If you are the uh, the embodiment of the popular will and you have to have massive security because you're worried that the people will storm the scaffold and rescue the man of blood, doesn't that, don't they see the, the, the well, sort of, see, the, I mean, the those, are obviously, those are obviously the wrong kind of people. You know, well, there's, there's, there's a, a great example of this actually is, is sort of, you know, if you, if you look at the, the level of agreements, the people and in certainly in, in, in versions of them, when, when they come down to sort of who is going to be able to vote in these versions of agreements, the people, you know, initially it sounds like, Every, every man, every free man will have his vote. And then they think about it and they think, well, mm, actually, maybe you know, <laughs> may, maybe not servants. No, no, servants are too, too kind of wedded to their masters. So on. Okay, not servants, not servants. Okay, well, hang on. What about people who receive, receive charity? No, 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 no. They, because they're too, you know, dependent as well. They're not people who receive charity. We'll, we'll strike them out. Okay, okay, not them. Okay, what about royalists? Oh, well, not royalists. They're not royalists. Okay, no, no royalists. Okay, okay. Okay, what about people who don't like the agreement? No, well, we shouldn't have people who don't like the agreement either. So eventually, yeah. you end up with a franchise that is people who agree with you. And these yeah. are the people. These are the, these are the people. Yeah. 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 And abide, as Dominic says, an abiding uh, theme of history. <laughs> So Charles is on the scaffold and he's 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 put on an extra shirt, hasn't he? So that he won't yes. get cold and people yes. think that he's he's frightened. Yes. And he, he behaves very well. 
Yes. Uh, so, so, so again, you know, I think this is as in his trial, a moment in which he shows great composure and dignity. Do we know who the we don't we don't know who the executioners are? Then they wear wigs, the executioners, to disguise. Yeah, they wear, their... they wear masks, and uh, yeah, so their 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 identity is concealed. Although it's usually thought to have been uh, a guy called um, Richard Brandon, is the the executioner, and um, and so Charles Neal's. But he gives a, he gives a speech first, though, doesn't he? Doesn't he give a? Um... Yes. Yes, he does give a speech, and there is also, as there is for the later trials, a, a shorthand note taker there to take down um, what the king is saying. What he's saying. Uh, so his final words are recorded. I go from um, an, an, a corruptible crown to an incorruptible. I mean, it's impressive. Yeah. Great you know, stuff. It's great. Yeah, it is great, great stuff. stuff. And isn't his last words? And he one last word is remember. <laughs> and then, I mean, I just kind of think Charles the First, obviously, in many ways, was a pretty poor man. But if I'm publicly executed, I mean, I, I can only dream of behaving with the sort of dignity <laughs> and courage of Charles the First on the scaffold. Yeah, yeah. became him all that yes. kind of stuff. Yeah. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. And then there's um, there's uh, such a groan as I never heard before, and desire I may never hear again. It's the head bumps and rolls doesn't is there some weird story i mean it's in 1066 and all that so it must be true that that child you know his head gets chopped off and he wanders around the block for a few seconds and <laughs> yeah that's, that's definitely true <laughs> yeah yeah there's a great, pic- there's a great yeah, picture on a great picture of uh, the headless charles the first kind of discoursing but do people dip their handkerchiefs in the blood is that yes, true yes yeah and you know, again, going back to those kind of um, contemporary uh, visualizations of the execution, um, there's lots of images of people fainting in the crowd uh, or, you know, people with their heads in their hands, you know, in shock and dismay of what has happened. So the crowd, um, so this is different from, let's say, Tom mentioned the execution of Louis the the Sixteenth and the sort of classic French revolutionary, you know, the tricketers and the crowd roaring and all this sort of stuff, which is obviously we've got from dickens and carlisle but the execution of charles the first do you think the crowd were were pleased do you think they cheered and hurrah the man of blood is dead or do you think some of them were upset oh i, I think certainly people were the, i think certainly people were upset yeah 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 well, so so yeah, well, i mean i know this is a topic we've we've already asked but um alex kleinberg how did the rest of the population react to the execution was public opinion divided uh would you say that the uh, basically people are just kind of stunned that it's actually happened? Yeah, stunned, horrified, appalled, um, and European reaction as well is that this is you know extraordinary, despicable, terrifying. Um, there's there's an interesting letter from the Venetian ambassador where he says, first of all, you know. History records no example of the like. This is something that's totally unprecedented. But the, in, the, in the next bit of that letter, he goes on and he basically kind of admonishes, you know, European ruling, um, you know, has a saying, saying, you know, you spent all your time in your petty squabbles, you know, disputing about your various, you know, um, privileges and all the rest of it. And here is this terrible existential threat that's emerged in England where... So the idea of know, monarchy... The idea of monarchy itself has now been put on trial and dispatched. And is that and how it's generally understood? Because, I mean, it, you know, in the wake of, of Louis XVI's execution, I mean, that's absolutely clear. Uh, the, there's a kind of dread among the monarchs of, of, of Europe. Do they feel that kind of dread that maybe this is something that might spread? Or, or is it just seen as a kind of mad English thing? No, I think there's definitely, you know, a fear of... 
um, contagion. Also, also just, you know, as I say, the extraordinary nature of it and a recognition of how different it is from, um, you know, what is a relatively commonplace uh, occurrence, which is a king dying at the hands of his own subjects. You know, a king dying in battle or dying post-deposition is something that's awful, but in a way is kind of recognised as yeah. as an occupational <laughs> risk, if you like. But but the idea that you're you're going to be tried by your own subjects and that they're going to assert their authority over you as they take your head off is something that is is extraordinary. But here's a weird thing, though, Ted. So in some ways, you would say this is an incredibly symbolic moment. Um, it shows that monarchy is not above the law, that the monarchy is is sort of subject to the popular will, all these kind of things. And yet, obviously, Britain still has a monarchy and yep. the monarchy is restored in 1660. And could you not argue that in some ways, politically, in the very long run and in the sort of in the in the battle for the public imagination, that this is a disaster for the anti for Charles's opponents, because it makes him a martyr. And even now, you know, when children read in their mm. kind of school textbooks about the execution of Charles I. It is very hard, as as we found in this podcast, it's very hard yeah. to tell the story without Charles becoming this well, tremendous underdog and, and very and, admirable. And, should, and on that theme, uh, is it not that, I mean, the morning of the execution that you get this pamphlet, Icon Basilike, published, mm. which is supposedly Charles's own reflections. Um, and, and in reaction to that, you get Milton publishing Iconoclasties, i.e. the idea that icons yeah. should properly be smashed. Yes. He just can't compete in the bestseller stakes. It's it's no that you know um, Icon Basilica is is a runaway bestseller and you know far you know exceeds the parliamentarian attempts to to counter it um, and and I think it's it's not even you know it, in in the long run a, a problem. I mean it, it immediately becomes a problem um, for the new regime, if you like, even amongst its own governing class. So they attempt very soon after the king's execution, basically to require everybody on this, this new governing body, the council of state to take a pledge of loyalty, the engagement, um, which basically says that you, you agree as well as pledging loyalty to the new regime, you agree that the execution, trial and execution of the king was justified, was lawful. And, Members of the Council of State won't take it, including most notably Thomas Fairfax, who eventually takes a kind of modified version of it. Um, so it's not just that it's, you know, it's a problem in terms of the wider public um, being appalled by this. Even amongst those who are now in charge, there's a great deal of sort of, um, you know, conflicted feelings about what has been done, what, 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 they've, what they've just gone through. Uh, and it does leave this problem of legitimacy, um, you know, at the heart of, of this regime. This basically the regime has had to come into power through, you know, this course of action, which essentially many people feel is illegal, as well as being immoral in many ways. Because, of course, when we, we're using this word regicide, regicide is not a crime. It is a sin. They've committed this heinous sin of of killing uh, their anointed king. Well, the, so the new seal is 1649 in the first year of freedom by God's blessing restored. So, yeah, so so that's the question, isn't it? How, where, 
what is it that's being restored? What is this freedom that's being restored? Ancient and, freedoms, and, Tom. So, so <laughs> from our, our Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> but but even going further back than that, so so you know, Milton writes Paradise Lost, the idea of, of freedoms that go back to to man's creation by God. I mean, is it these are the kind of yeah, political so, and theological arguments that the so, 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 uh, so we should points. say because we've been talking a lot about the horror and the division and the anxiety that that you know in the aftermath of the trial there are people who get enormously excited about Oops. what has happened uh, and uh, you know um talking about the garden of in- you know eden of course one of those people is gerard win stanley yeah. um the digger leader off in surrey um this is kingly power um being brought down the spirit of covetousness and he starts digging doesn't he, in the months after the yes yeah after the execution yeah, yeah. um yeah. but then obviously in the long run ted Charles's son, Charles, um, who's been in exile, he returns in 1660, and it's sort of hurrah, hurrah, the monarchy is back. And the regicides, so some of them are obviously dead, obviously most famously Cromwell, but the ones who aren't, are they, they're basically hunted down, are they, and, and, and forced to face justice? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so some of them have already kind of fled into exile um, because the the king's general pardon um, exempts accepts those who are uh, had had a part in his father's murder, um, as as it's framed. Um, uh, and so some of them have to be, you know, some of them are are taken back from from um, uh, the United Provinces from the Dutch Republic, um, and uh, they are brought to trial. Um, uh, Some flee to America, don't they? Yes. Yeah, so, so three of them famously escape to New England: um, uh, William Goff, Edward Wally, and John Dixwell. And all of them escape uh, justice. So, what they do is actually um, certainly nobody ever finds out. I think that Dixwell is over there because he he basically goes uh, to the continent first of all, and they think that he's somewhere in Germany, and they never kind of twig that he's actually gone over to New Haven and is living under an assumed name in New Haven. Um, can I? Can I? So, so, in the wake of Charles's execution, there there are statues of of Charles and of his father James. Um, I think in St. Paul's and they get taken down and demolished. And there's a statue of Charles I by the Royal Exchange and that gets again kind of demolished and he gets, it gets beheaded. And they, they kind of put this inscription on it. Um, death of the last Royal tyrant in the first year of England's liberty restored 1649. And there's something very French revolutionary about that. Uh, the, the idea that the symbols of monarchy have to be toppled, um, that and yet, ultimately, it's as though it never happened. And we've got a, a fi- kind of final question here from Ian Brocci. Uh, and this, this, I mean, it sounds a very bad thing to ask at the end of what, what an hour and a half we've been talking about this. But with Cromwell becoming Lord Protector and then Charles II restored by 1660, do you think that Charles I's execution, while very dramatic, was ultimately not terribly significant? Don't say that's Ted of all people. He's writing a book about it. it. It's, it's just <laughs> if, you can, if you compare Ooh. the impact of Louis the 16th execution with the, the the ideological assault on the idea of monarchy and you compare it to this there is obviously a kind of ideological assault but it's it's not it doesn't reverberate very profoundly and as dominic said you know the monarchy gets restored we still have a monarchy we're still there's still overwhelming support for for, for royalism is is this something that just gets forgotten or does it have a kind of long-term effect on um American Revolution, French Revolution, and therefore into kind of modern republicanism. I mean, 
how how significant is this as a moment do you think I think it's very significant and I think you know I, I come back to you know the the other question that I that I got from one of your listeners about the regicides and which circle of hell they were in I mean it, it lives in infamy uh, to the present day. I mean, and to the present day, we have people who commemorate the death of Charles I. There'll be people on the 30th of this month going to lay wreaths, um, at the base of his statue at the top of Whitehall. Um, you know, there'll be a solemn procession down Whitehall. Um, this is a, this is a remarkable event, which was remembered, you know, through the centuries, mainly, uh, being remembered in an English context as a tragedy as a national disgrace as something which you know there has to be a regular um kind of you know remembering and a kind of atonement for, for as a nation i mean the, the january 30th remained a day in the official church calendar for special prayers up until i think the mid 19th century um so it's something which exerts a really uh, powerful influence in terms of the national memory um but it is also something where we we have another narrative going along with it, which is actually that this is a moment in which um, tyranny is resisted, in which oppressive power is overthrown, and in which liberty, republican liberty, and so that's the kind of campaign is, is established. Yeah, yeah, yeah. feeding um, uh, and for for English radicals, it's always really problematic to acknowledge that and engage with that, even if they did feel sympathetic. It's always the, it's the place you don't want to go to. I mean, there's the, there's the famous Gilray uh, cartoon of the 18th century radical Richard Price as his writing desk, um, and the, 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 the sort of symbolised figure of Edmund Burke is behind him uh, with the Bible and uh, you know the crucifix coming behind him, sort of representing king and church. But just you know above Richard Price, above his writing desk, is this image of Charles the First execution, and the subtitle is the execution of Charles the First or the glory of Great Britain. And so the implication is that all of these sort of reasonable uh, reformers of the 18th century are actually in their hearts uh, regicidal republicans. So this is something that they're always, most of them trying to, except for people like Payne, trying to distance themselves from a lot of English radicals. So Charles is kind of great posthumous victory in a way. It, I mean, he loses, it, he loses the war. I, in I, think sense, he I, think it, I think it is a great victory for the royalist cause. Yes, certainly. But it is also something that has uh, an important legacy um, in, in, uh, in, in Republican circles as well. And I think it, it is something that is influential, um, uh, internationally as well as, as well as within England too. So, um, you know, it is something that influences the French Revolution. I mean, Louis the 16th is famously kind of contemplating the fate of Charles the first when, when he is on trial. Um, it's also something I think that, you know, the American revolutionaries, I mean, Jefferson and Adams were both deeply read in the history of the civil wars is something that is, is part of their, um, yeah. Uh, you know, DNA thing, yeah, thinking too. Well, that's brilliant, Ted. Thanks so much. It's um, amazing. I'm very subject, relieved, isn't it? to find at the end that it yeah. is important because it would <laughs> <laughs> be terrible if it wasn't. We'd wasted yeah. our time, yeah. but we haven't at all. So, th- th- thanks so much. And th- okay. when is the book out? Uh, the, I had no idea. The book will be out <laughs> okay. when when I can actually get to write it. Yeah, okay. no, no. I mean, it's uh, I I changed my byline um, when I was doing a literary review. 
um, review, and I, I said I'm writing a book very slowly on the trial of Charles <laughs> I. So my my hope is that this this year I might write a couple of chapters and get a book contract together, basically. Okay. Uh, and so, get someone signed um, up. So, so we're, we're, we're talking like you know three or four years down the <laughs> line. Right. So, <laughs> it's only 40, okay, well worth hanging out for. Thanks so much, Ted. Okay. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Uh, we will be back very soon with what are we going to be back with? We've got uh, we've got diseases and we've got Babylon. Yeah, so we've got, we've got all history, up. all the stuff. All right, bye bye. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.